Today's Animal Spirits Listener Mailbag Edition is brought to you by Rocket Dollar. If you haven't listened yet, go back and listen to our Talk Your Book with Rocket Dollar founder Henry Oshida. And also, rocketdollar.com slash animal spirits brings you to an offer to download a free copy of the Rocket Dollar Guide to Self-Directed Retirement Plans. Michael and I have been learning a lot about these. We didn't know that much until Henry kind of schooled us on these. Go to that website, rocketdollar.com slash animal spirits and get your free copy there. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. So we do love talking about the markets, but we also get a ton of questions on retirement accounts. And we're not experts on every retirement account, so... As we've done the last couple times we've done this, we brought in an expert, Henry Oshita from Rocket Dollar, is going to help us answer a few questions on retirement accounts. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Michael, we're entering the email again. We've got a whole doc full of listener questions. I even grabbed a question right before this show. That's how good this is with listener questions coming in. It's always something. I feel like this first question is directed directly for you because I can't okay, answer what this. what is it? Okay. Can you discuss the use of stop losses when owning individual stocks? Not sure about you, but I would regret having sold an individual stock that went on to be a 10-bagger winner, which I've done a lot more than I'd regret losing a large portion of initial investment. Plenty of examples to cherry pick, but a stop loss wouldn't have saved you on Netflix, PayPal, all right, all right, all right. Facebook, blah, blah, blah. So, so he okay. says- P.S. Michael, convince Ben to get back into stock picking game. He's smarter than he looks, and it's great to hear content about his mistakes. They just want to enjoy my mistakes on individual stock picking. We'll see. What say you about stop losses? Because you've used them in the past, I'm sure. I can say with 100% certainty, I've never used a stop loss. Well, can I life. tell you with 100% certainty that every single stop loss has been triggered? Every single stop loss that I ever placed was hit. <laughs> this person also said, if you can't stomach at least a 50% drawdown on the path to large gains, you just shouldn't own individual stocks. Concur. Concur. Now, this is a personal type of thing, but I want to circle back to one of the things that he said. He said, I would regret having sold an individual stock that went on to be a 10x a lot more than I would regret losing a large portion of an initial investment in stock. That right there is critical. Only you know yourself. So what feels worse to you? For this person, what feels worse is selling what is a gigantic future winner. And this person's right. If you are in it for a 10-bagger, you literally cannot have a 10-bagger without getting cut in half. It cannot ever be done. There are other people who say, later for that, I'm not sitting around for a 50% drawdown because I'm not in it for the 10X, for the 10-bagger. I'm looking for 20% upside with 5% downside or whatever it is. So for this person who's looking for that giant winner, stop losses don't make sense. But look at the market environment that we're in today. And this person sounds like a seasoned investor, so I'm not talking about them specifically, but it's easy to fool yourself. And say that you're in it for the 10-bagger and that you can get cut in half. But the problem is way more stocks, I don't know if it's 10 to 1, 20 to 1, 50 to 1, way more stocks get cut in half and never recover than end up being the next Amazon or Microsoft. And if you don't get the 10-bagger and all you get are names that (laughs) don't do anything, you're not going to do very well. So I think that the only way to learn what your comfort level is in terms of riding losers, selling winners, regret. You just have to do it. And at some point, hopefully, you will say, okay, 
I've done this enough times so that I now have calibrated my internal sense of what feels good, minimizing regret, that sort of stuff. There's no right way to address this where you should set a stop loss at negative 12%, whatever it is, whatever your comfort level is, you got to find it. The other thing is it probably makes sense to not waver back and forth between, wait, now I'm going to be a stop loss person because I have stocks that are down 50%. But when they're up 100%, then now I'm a long-term and I'm not going to stop losses anymore. So it's like either you have those rules and that discipline or you don't. So you can't like waver and go back and forth. And then, oh, I'm going to put a stop loss in now that it's down 50% in case it goes down 80 And then you get knocked out and then it comes back and you say, well, wait, now I regret that. So you really have to know what you're getting yourself into. When you you have to know this, thyself. Yeah. You have to know thyself. We've been talking a lot, at least I've been writing a lot about having a plan in the recent market turmoil. It really truly doesn't matter what your philosophy is. I mean, there are some bad philosophies, right? If your philosophy is I'm going to hold 90% cash and wait for a bear market, that's not a good one. But you have to have some sort of strategy, philosophy that jives with your style of investing that you can live with through thick or thin. And some people never get there. Some people, it takes a few years to get there, but eventually most people either give up or find something like you just have to find what jives with you. My whole thing is a suboptimal plan is better than no plan. For sure. At least something to guide your actions. All right, here's one. This is a plan. Have you ever heard of the golden butterfly portfolio? (laughs) Michael, this is a new one to me. We got a a link to portfolio charts where it lists the golden butterfly. This sounds similar to the permanent portfolio. It is essentially 20% total stock market, 20% small cap value, 20% long-term bonds, 20% short-term bonds, 20% gold. Again, this is pretty close so to Harry the Brown's portfolio. portfolio. Seems to perform very well in backtests, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, if you were to include any in other investments, crypto, Fundrise, Masterworks, any other alternatives, what percentages be? Listen, there's a million asset allocations you can choose, and it wouldn't make sense for us to say this is good or bad, change it by 5% or 10%. If you said, no, you should take small cap value to 25% or take it to 15%, in the end of the day, that is not going to matter at all. It's just, can you stick with this? And will you rebalance this in a disciplined manner? Will you stick with the allocation? Whatever allocation you choose, because the only perfect portfolio is one you know in hindsight. Like in the future, who knows if this is going to work or not? It only works if you stick so with it. So the problem is a lot of people are like, well, what about this? What about that? And I am Mr. What about this or what about that, right? I've got investments all over the place. But what I know is that every two weeks, I'm buying stocks in my 401k, come hell or high water. Every month, I'm on auto deposit buying stocks, come hell or high water in my taxable account and adding on the way down, not to brag. But that's what I'm doing. And then any of this other stuff that I'm dabbling with or even dabbling with probably is underselling it. I'm more than dabbling. But at least like for the bulk of my money, that is completely... It doesn't count as dabbling if you get your NFT tattooed on your back. <laughs> That's not dabbling anymore. But, but <laughs> my serious investments are on autopilot. Yes. If you're going to do something like this where you pick these weights, it almost has to be. I'm going to rebalance every six months or every year or every 18, whatever it is. You have to stick with it. Also... You could pick any one of these allocations or any one of these holdings and say, here's an environment that this is going to do terribly in. And it's like, yeah, everything has that. I mean, I think if anything of the last like two or three years has cemented for me, it's that the only thing you can count on working, and I use working in quotes, over the long run is diversification. Think about it. Value is being left for dead. Energy stocks were left for dead. Commodities were left for dead. And then we get a pandemic. And guess what? Oh, by the way, these things work again. And all the stuff that was working is getting slaughtered. The only thing that matters, I think, the only thing you can count on is but diversification by the way, even in that everything is goes in and out of style. Diversification goes in and out of style. Exactly. At the end of the day, that's all you can hang your hat on. But even diversification goes in and out of style. But to answer this person's question directly, I think these permanent portfolios are totally sensible. 
easier said than done to stick with because they're boring as hell. So if you're going to sprinkle in a little fun, what is an appropriate amount for alternatives? I don't want to give exact advice, but let's say 19%. No, just kidding. (laughs) Whatever is within your comfort zone. Let's put it that way. But I think you're like in the right ballpark. And the way that I have landed on alternatives is like you, I have all those 401k, 529, SEP IRA, all that stuff and taxable account. Once those are funded, then the leftover stuff, now I can play with alternatives. Yes. That's the way that I look at it. I want to have all those boxes checked first and then go. If my alternatives all went to zero, it would hurt more than a little. It's more than a paper cut. It would actually hurt like hell, but I'd be okay. Let's more like a JPEG cut. <laughs> What's a JPEG cut? Paper cut, yeah, I don't know. Because a JPEG is like- the Oh, I understand. Oh, that was a digital, a digital paper cut. Yeah, yeah not bad. All right, all right. All right. I'm graduating in May and fortunate to have an offer as a wealth management analyst. Good for you. Perfect opportunity for me. Great mentor. Paying for my CFP will allow me to retain ownership of the assets I bring in. They give our base pay and all this stuff. I'm moving to the most expensive county in my otherwise low cost of living state. Found a couple of apartments last fall that would cost around 1500 bucks. However, those apartments have now gone up to 1800 bucks a month. That's inflation for you. Nice apartment, full gym, pool, sauna. Even with that increase, I would be able to pay my bills, contribute to my Roth 401k, save $500 a month, and throw $500 a month at my student loans. 25000 in total. I would really like to spend less, but my only alternative is to live in an area with a very high crime rates. My friends are moving into the area, are moving back with their parents, so a roommate is not an option. Ideally, there would be an apartment in the area that doesn't have such nice amenities, but that is not the case. Basically, the apartment's going to be a big, big part of his budget. Is this rent too much? He actually sent us his budget, which I'm not even going to go into, but the idea is budget is going to be eaten up by apartment for the most part. What do you think? All right. Without going into like the line-by-line items, especially when you're just first starting to work and like the idea is something has to give. So Ryan Holiday, you familiar with him? He's the stoic guy. He has a nice newsletter. And he said, when you become a parent, you have two out of three choices. You can do really good at your job. You can do really good at your family. Or you can do really good like going out and having fun all the time. Pick two because you can't have all three. You can't like have a great social life if you're also going to do good at work and family. Something has to give, basically. And I think that's the way I think about this, especially when you're starting out with your first gig like... You're just going to have to cut back on something if your housing expense is going to be a big part of your budget. So you have to figure out like what is so unimportant to you that you just say, I do not care. I'm not going to buy nice clothes. My first apartment, I had furniture from Ikea and Walmart. I just didn't care because I wanted to do other stuff still. And I drove a crappy car. So I think you have to have that. Something has to give there, basically, if you're going to live in a nice apartment. That's what I'm I saying. guess I would say how dangerous is the neighborhood that you're contemplating downgrading to? Because... I think that you're probably not going to regret splurging for an apartment if you have to cut back elsewhere, but you definitely might regret living in a neighborhood where you don't feel safe going home late at night. That's probably fair. I think the thing is you just have to figure out like, if this is my one splurge, there are five other areas I'm going to have to cut back on that I just don't care about. That's Can I recommend stuff. shopping on Instagram? <laughs> Only t-shirts. But I think that there's no, like you can't say this is too much or too little based on what you make. And if you're still able to save... And pay down your student debt, like it sounds to me like you're on the right path. I feel like 99% of the questions we get are people that are on the right path. If they're like listening to us, not because it's us, but if they're listening to a financial podcast, they're probably pretty responsible and forward thinking. Yes. And I also think like it is good to treat your savings like a bill almost. Like I'm putting $500 a month in my IRA and it's like a bill because that's going to go out either way. And you almost don't think of that as it's actually me getting ahead, but that's what it is. And so if you have that saving already, then like you have the pot remaining after what you save, then I think that that gives us the flexibility to say like, all right, I'm going to shave off here or I'm going to go really big here. That's kind of the way to think about it. Okay. 
While the U.S. historic stock market data clearly supports buy and hold investing, with more and more advisors touting international developed and EM allocations as part of a diversified portfolio, do international markets follow the same historical pattern of buy and hold working? Japan and Spain look pretty bad, but Germany or France seem better. This came in before the recent events, clearly. <laughs> yes. What's that, the Credit Suisse Global Yearbook that comes around? I put the link in. So I would say that 2022 just came Innovation out. is not limited to the United States. It might feel that way, but we've had lost decades where international stocks outperformed the vice versa. It's been a minute. But I would say that the desire to improve your circumstances and motivation to build a better tomorrow is not limited to the United States. So the idea of if you want exposure to global stocks, I think that the best way to do that is systematic. Whether the system is buy and hold or something different, the idea is, hmm, is now a good time? That doesn't work ever. And it might work here and there, but it's not a strategy. Hmm, is now a good time? Doesn't work. The whole thing's going in and out of style. So I began my career in 2005-ish. And that whole first half decade of my career, international, yes, BRICS, international EM were killing everything. The US was going through a lost decade from 2000 to 2009. And then it completely flipped. But look at this. I put this chart in here from the Credit Suisse yearbook. And it shows, we talked about this chart on a show recently, Animal Spirits, about how the US went from 15% of global world market cap in 1900 to 60% now. But look at it fluctuate over time. As recently as the 90s, it was back down to 30%. And now it's gone up to 60 because Japan, this is all developed economies as part of the global world. So you can see, they actually put this in. They show the US going back to 1900 and what the real returns are for the stock market after inflation. The US from 1900 to 2021 is like 6.7%. They also looked at the world ex-US. So that's all developed in emerging markets outside of the US from 1900 to 1921. It's like 4.5%. So the US has a pretty good risk premium over the rest of the world. Obviously, the winners write the history books because it's grown so much, but that doesn't mean that you haven't gotten good returns outside of Here's the US. Here's my favorite stat on this. And Ben, we were talking earlier about diversification never dies. It just goes in and out of favor. And that's the case with US and international stocks. So my favorite data point to hammer home the case for global diversification, which I think I could speak for Ben and I, we're both big proponents of, is this. From 1970 to 2011, the US stock market, from a US investor's point of view, so dollar denominated, the US stock market and international stocks, ex-United States, both had the exact same long-term return from 1970 to sometime in 2011. If you like widen that out and you go from 1970 to today, the US has trounced because all of the outperformance has come in the last 11 years. All right, here, I did some data on this. This is another question in a similar vein, so I want to get to it. I've held an emerging markets ETF for about 10 years and essentially made no money. The idea was diversification across asset classes, but to be honest, I wish I put it in US stocks instead, of course. Basically, I'm tired of taking downside risk because a textbook said you need to allocate internationally with no upside reward. Is it time to get out of emerging markets? So here's to your point. Since 1988, when the MSCI Emerging Markets Index was founded, emerging markets have done 10% a year. S&P 500 has done 11% per year. Pretty close. Since 2008, emerging markets have done 2% a year. S&P has done 10%. That's so bad. It's kind of crazy. If you include 2008, when we had a 37% crash that year alone, The S&P since 2008, the start of 2008 is up 10% per year, basically average. So if you put in the bear market with the bull market, you get average. But this is 1988 to 2007. This number kind of blew me away. It was higher than I thought. Emerging markets were up 16% per year through 2007. The S&P was up 12% per year. So pre-2008, emerging markets were like 5% a year better than the S&P. 
obviously a lot of that is filled in like really concentrated areas and especially that 2000, 2007 period. But to your point, like diversification sometimes matters in like bursts and the S&P has crushed emerging markets since 2008. Just absolutely annihilated Just look at energy stocks. Same thing. Who wanted to own energy stocks when oil went negative? Yeah. And now they're up 50% year to data, whatever it is. So anyway, everything is cyclical. Looking to protect a portion of my capital against inflation in 2022, you and everyone else. I've already purchased a limit, the max limit of I-bonds. He learned about these on Animal Spirits, he says, and even got his 80-year-old parents in on the action. The government should be giving us a kickback for Wait, these. Wait, we don't have an affiliate deal with the Treasury? <laughs> I have some cash lying around and want to have a safe inflation hedge. I came across tips. What are your thoughts? Specifically, VTIP and STIP, both of which have relatively high yields. They're both shorter term. They should perform well in rising inflation, right? And by well, I mean 4 to 5% total return for the year. Would rising interest rates say a Fed funds rate of 1% by the end of 2022 negatively impact these ETFs? Or would that be offset by the benefit of inflation? I did some research on this. Michael, I was doing a lot of research today. So this is the Vanguard short-term tips ETF and the iShares 0 to 5 year tips ETF. Because if you look at the TIP ETF, or is it tips? TIP. TIPS? No, it's just, or is it TIP? That one's longer ben, term. That's just the tip. Okay. <laughs> Not bad. That's better than a 69 <laughs> joke. <laughs> but that TIP ETF is actually longer term. I think it's more like 20 years. These ones are shorter The shorter term. ones have a higher correlation with CPI. This is since the beginning of 2021, so a little over a year, a year and a quarter, we'll call it. Both of these funds are essentially up the same amount. They're both up like a little over, around 6.5%. The Vanguard total bond ETF is down 7%. So you know what's interesting? We got this question a lot. What our answer was, which I hope is the truth, actually, I know it to be the truth, is that tips hedge against unexpected inflation. And so like, for example, last year when the five-year break-even, which is basically the spread between nominal treasuries and real bonds, that's what the spread is. So we were saying, well, listen- Tips are pricing in a lot of inflation. And so if we don't get even inflation that's even higher than that, you could actually do poorly. But <laughs> there was an unexpected inflation, clearly, These even worked. higher than, I don't know if the 10-year break-evens were like at historic levels, but I know they were pretty high. And even still, they hedged against it because, again, the inflation that we got was unexpected. So tips are outperforming the total bond market by roughly 15% over the last 14 or 15 months. That's pretty good. And I think this is tips are almost an alternative asset class. Like they almost should be. They're like the one asset you can get one to one inflation protection in. And so obviously you say, like, should I do it now? Because, well, what if rates rise here and inflation comes in? Are these going to underperform? And yeah, they probably will. One to one expected return with unexpected, with inflation that's not priced in. So if the market, if the real tips yield was 5% or break evens were 5% and inflation came in at 4, well, you could still have decent inflation and not be hedged. But my point is that the bond market obviously is not smarter than the economy a lot of times and that those expectations are not always right. Well, that's true. But yeah, that's the hard part now is like the inflation is here and obviously it could get worse and it probably will get worse, but how much worse can it get? And then do you come in at the wrong time? And that's again why like diversification is the answer because you have a portfolio that's durable enough to handle all this stuff at a certain time and you don't complain about it when it doesn't work. That's the way I look at it. The way that I was taught is you get what you get and you don't get upset. Oh, you know, I got that one from my four-year-old last week. (laughs) My daughter was complaining about dinner and my son said, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. And we said, where did you learn that? He said, oh, at daycare. That works. At preschool. So, all right. Here's what I got. 401k maxed out for the year. HSA will be maxed out for the year. Also have a target date fund through Vanguard. Is this you? Ben, is this you? (laughs) 32 years old, married, no debt outside of a mortgage. Trying to have a child in the next year. 
401k and lifestyle fund are about 80 to 85% in stocks. My question, is it a good idea or good use of capital with some money lying around to invest directly in a US equity index fund that's 100% equity based with no rebalancing other asset allocation? I already have quite a bit of exposure to equities in my current accounts, but it's mostly mixed with some bonds as well. I'm not sure if going another 100% equity fund is worth it or I should just continue investing in my lifestyle fund through Vanguard. So basically he's saying, I have an asset allocation. I have some money to put in. Should I juice the returns a little more or the risk a little more by putting it all in stocks with some money that I have? Yes, you should. Next question. Now, Ben, what are your thoughts? I think unless there's a reason why change your asset allocation. Like if you have an asset allocation you can live with and you can stomach and you've done it for a number of years, there better be a good reason to change it. Not just because, eh, I think I should change it. Are there good reasons to change it sometimes? Yeah, sure. If you say interest rates are so low that I just I have the desire to take more risk because I want to up my expected return over the long well, term. Well, how about this? If this person's in a life cycle fund at Vanguard and they're 32, that's probably 97% stocks anyway. So what's the difference? Yeah, they said 80 to 85% okay. right now. They're in stocks. By so. the way, I wanted to mention this. The question about leverage that we got a million times last year. I tweeted about it this morning. All the time, yes. What's the leverage fund down So I'm now? looking at the TQQQ, the ultra NASDAQ 100. And I understand the thinking. So I'm not trying to wag my finger at anybody, but it's down 50% in four months. And guess what? Oof. Who's to say how low that's going to go? And that's with the regular NASDAQ 100 20? down 20%, yeah. we'll say? The problem is, and when that's you're tough. down, let's just say this goes down 70, not a prediction, who knows? Everyone has a breaking point. Everyone has a breaking point where you're like, oh man, this was a bad idea. I can't, I got to get out. I got to get out. I got to get out. And the thing is, this tech stock sell-off, even though the NASDAQ 100 sort of was the last one to fall, for many of these stocks has been going on for over a year now. Like February 2021 was the top for many of these stocks. This is starting to turn into extended losses for a lot of people. You're right. And the longer something like this goes on, the harder it is to stick with something. Every day in the back like of your head, turn there's right a little away. voice of you saying, oh, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. Oh, you're such an idiot. And at some point, you're like, duh. Yes. All right. I'm a video editor by day, screenwriter by hey, night. Hey, Duncan. I have so much respect for people who write fiction. My brain doesn't work like that. Whatever that creative thing is, people who can tell stories like that. I have a lot of I also wouldn't for. know how to write fiction. Do you like do a quote? He said, she said, and then <laughs> yes. I thought. Yeah. Wait, is there a comma in here? Yeah. All right. After 15 years of writing, I finally sold a screenplay. What? Isn't life-changing amounts of money? I now have dry powder. I like to deploy in the markets. Taking into account the current deranged geopolitical landscape, what are your thoughts on the kind of assets I should be targeting with this cash? All right. For this person, not knowing anything other than what they told us. So they're worried about geopolitics. They're not used to having a large sum of money. I would say dollar cost averaging is an appropriate strategy for this type of person or some sort of balanced portfolio. And we know the math and the spreadsheet and blah, 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 blah. But for this person, again, only knowing what they told us, I think dollar cost averaging into an index fund makes sense. The other thing is, I think some people say, I've got this cash, I need to invest it. Like I need to make something on it. But the first question should always be like, what is this cash for? Am I saving it for a down payment for a house? Am I saving it for a vacation or for my wedding? Or is this retirement? So like figure out what your goal is first before you figure out how to invest it. And your goal should not just be, I want to make as much money as possible on this. Now, maybe some people want that, but you have to figure out like what's the use of the capital in the first place and what's your time horizon. Then you can figure it out. But I agree. This is the thing where regret minimization is a big factor in what you do in terms of like how this is where dollar cost averaging can earn its keep. Even though our friend and colleague Nick says dollar cost averaging like loses all the time. In Nick's defense, he's somewhat some. something of a robot. <laughs> yes. 
Okay. All right. This is a good one. I've never looked into this as much as I thought before. I noticed my target date fund has a fee, and it was made up of 10 other funds, each with a fee. Are target date funds really fees on fees where I get charged a certain percentage for the target date fund and then another expense for the fund itself? Uh, so I've come across this. And actually, if you're an advisor listening, check out our interview with Pantera, formerly known as FX, because when we were allocating client accounts, or not allocating, we were telling clients to take a look at their 401k and what to pick. I always looked for a target date fund. That was my base. But that wasn't just good enough because there are some target date funds that have like 90 basis point expense ratio. So I'm like, oh man, later for that, we'll just reconstruct it using the index funds that are 10 basis points or whatever it is. And I did come across certain target date funds that were filled with other funds. And I don't want to give the company, but I believe the one that I'm thinking of was funds inside of funds and each fund had its own expense ratio. However, the sticker that I saw at the target date level was the actual fee and all the underlying fees were waived because it was one company. So the point is you just have to check and maybe even like call them and find out. My research I found, this is according to a study in the Wall Street Journal. This is as of 2020, 20% of funds double dip, meaning they charge you a fee on top of the fees and underlying funds. But if you go so to a place like- don't. So if you go to a place like T. Rowe Price, Vanguard, BlackRock, or Fidelity, you don't get double dip. Like They don't charge you on those funds that they hold in the account. Fidelity was the one that I'm thinking about. I think your idea of does it have a really high fee, that should be like a red flag. If your target date fund is charging like 1% or whatever, that would be a red flag enough to be like, wait a minute, should I just build this myself? I agree. And we are joined today for some listener questions by Henry Yoshida. Henry is the CEO of Rocket Dollar. Henry, good to see you again. Good to see you too. Thanks a lot, guys. Before we jump right into the questions, as a reminder for people that didn't listen to our episode, I guess it was sometime last year, what is Rocket Dollar? So Rocket Dollar, we are a IRA platform. We let people open special IRAs. So on our digital platform, in six pages and under five minutes, people can open an IRA that allows them to keep the tax benefits of an IRA account. But instead of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, people can buy private and alt investments, crypto, venture, startups. What sort of alt it. we talking? Can I connect my OpenSea? Can we do some NFTs or what? Like how alt are we talking? Yeah. So there's certain alts that may sort of border on art and collectibles that are still kind of a TBD from a regulator and IRS standpoint. So I would say alts in the sense of private unregistered investments like venture and private equity and real estate are probably the major asset classes. And then more recently, crypto, but crypto from the perspective of just like kind of coins and digital currencies, not NFTs yet. All right. So give it time. Give it time. Yeah. All right, Ben, where are we going with this first question? Question is this. I have a Roth IRA. My father allocated money through my youth and gave me a few years back of roughly $100,000. That's a pretty good dad. Gross income is over the amount to contribute to the Roth any further. I wanted to know, do you have any guidance of what I'm supposed to do with this account besides sit back and watch it grow over the years as I cannot continue to put money in it? Is there something I'm not thinking of to be the most strategic with this account? What should I do? First of all, yeah, great dad. And sounds like son is doing pretty well if they now make too much gross income to contribute any further to the Roth. I get asked this question a lot on a personal basis. And unfortunately, it probably is you just have this money that's kind of in a Roth and it's just going to always be characterized. But you need to view it as a positive that maybe you just take a very different investment attitude towards this money because at this point now going forward, all the gains are not taxable when you use the money inside. So $100,000 is a pretty good base to probably go after some really high risk, high reward investments where if you have a long tail, super big win, then you're going to be really happy that you won't have any tax burden at all, which is normal for a Roth. Henry, we spoke about this before, but like, how do we balance these two ideas where it's like the thing that I 
think has the most upside. If I'm a youngish person, I don't necessarily want to wait until what's the age? 69 and a half, 59 and a half? 59 and a half, yeah. I don't want to wait until I'm 59 and a half to take my money out. I want to enjoy some of the benefit today. Just at a high level, how do you think about that? I guess in a way, you could say to yourself that always there's a 10% penalty for any money that's taken out of an IRA. So if you had a thousand X return, then maybe that's something that you live with and you take a 10% hit on the entire account and do that. I'm not saying that a lot of people do that, but it's always an option. I think that 10% is a penalty and that's actually literally the characterization they use. But I also say that maybe it's just, we talked about this last time, it could just be an access fee. I mean, you have a 1,000 X return on a $100,000 investment, and then all of a sudden you're in the billionaire category. You're the three comma club. <laughs> Not person. bad. I wonder if it's like you're paying with house money. So this is a gifted Roth. You talked about taking some bigger risks of it. I wonder if like the psychological component here like makes more sense to do that too because you're not the one who actually put the money in in the first place. So like taking those big risks might be easier with something like this. Yeah, I mean unfortunately that probably and this is more on the wealth management side of things, but that's exactly why people spend more money statistically using a credit card because it's not money that you see in the form of cash leaving your pocket. There is a little bit of a house money component to it, but you should look at it as sort of a great gift that you got from a father who'd obviously thought ahead because for them to have given you a Roth in your youth, you had to actually have been given contributions that were matched against real income. So while you were maybe working at McDonald's when you were 15, 16 years old, dad here was actually putting an equivalent amount into a Roth IRA and it's grown to 100K. There's two things. The two main things you can do would be that you use this as a bucket of money where you have some really good base of money to do some high risk, high reward investments with some potential for super outsized gains. Or you may actually decide to convert some existing Roth money and add to that base. And now you have some more money characterized with basically tax-free growth and tax-free distributions. I actually was a busboy when I was 15 and 16. So I did not get a Roth IRA from my dad. Thanks a lot. But can we just circle back to that 10% penalty? But in addition to that, you also do pay gains as well, capital gains, right? No. So there aren't capital gains in an IRA. Basically, you pay 10% on the money that you take out of an IRA. It's just kind of 10% straight off the board. There is no like you hold things for a year, you have like capital gains. It's like 10% across the board. I thought that once you take the money out, you pay the 10% penalty and then you pay the gains as well. You pay a 10% penalty on the amount that you take out that represents whatever your gains above your cost basis are. Oh, and then you'll pay tax on anything you take out Michael. on the traditional. On the Roth, those things are gone. But you will still get a 10% sort of early withdrawal penalty if you do it for something that doesn't qualify. So that's kind of intriguing. So it's like the optionality. It's like, all right, I'm willing to pay 10%. That's why a Roth is like a... I mean, I'll be shocked if the government doesn't shut the Roth IRA down in the years ahead. It's actually a really good deal for consumers. It is. But remember, the reason why the government doesn't shut it down is there was a period where I think the government thought last year that the Roth was something that was being taken advantage of by the ultra wealthy and the super elite. But... I've been in financial services for a long time. I actually find that the Roth is typically an account that is utilized by the very responsible and the financially savvy and the super savers. So think of this, your listener's dad. I mean, this is someone who had some real forethought here to be able to start contributing to a Roth and getting tax-free, tax-deferred growth for their son starting, at, let's say, at 10 years old. So Michael and I love to talk about the markets and everything that's going on there and geopolitics, how that's going to impact interest rates and the market and stuff. But the majority of normal questions we get from regular people is about like retirement accounts. So here's another one. Recently started a new job that offers a nice pension plan, which was a large part of the reason I accepted the position in the first place. Had a 401k at my old job built over the course of 12 years. 
but the new gig only offers a supplemental 401k option with no match. My question is, what is the best option for that 401k? Is it best to just carry it over to the new job despite no match and continue making small contributions in addition to the pension? Should I look at an IRA instead? As much as I like the idea of withdrawing the money and paying down leftover debt at age 34, the hammering of taxes feels entirely too much to bear. So basically figuring out I'm going to a new job. It doesn't have quite the same deal as the original job. Leave it where it is. Bring it over. Maybe open an IRA. What do you think? I would definitely 100% go to the IRA. Give yourself some more options outside of the probably 25 fund menu at the prior jobs 401k. Probably the new job has the same thing. You're not going to get any match on any transferred in monies, but you have a money movement event, which allows you to open up an IRA. And then you could choose to do that into traditional investments. You could work with an online brokerage. You could move that money over to Ritholtz Wealth Management and IRA. Or if you have some private NALT investments, you could use, let's say, an example like ours, a rocket dollar platform and go into some maybe crypto, for example, with that money. In this economy? (laughs) Remember, it's long haul. This person indicated they were sort of like mid-30s. So retirement accounts have 25, 30-year time frame. Didn't you tell us before that you could do like a rental property in there too or something? Couldn't you one of these IRAs? You could do a rental property. You could buy a crypto. You can make a private investment directly into a startup if you have access and have some separate qualifications for that or a private fund and so forth. But that old 401k money is now eligible to go somewhere. If you move it into the new 401k, now it's going to be trapped with a new 25 fund menu, which there's nothing wrong with that. It's designed as a fully diversified menu, but you have a, a moment in time here where you could actually take that 135 and go do something on your own, both in the traditional or private markets using an IRA, I think you should take advantage of that. Perfect. Thank you. Normal people who listen to our show like have these questions about retirement accounts and taxes. And I think this stuff is really helpful. So again, we're going to link to the Rocket Dollar Guide to Self-Directed Retirement Plans for people when we do the intro to our show. But thanks again to Henry for joining us. We appreciate the help. Thank you. All right. How did you get so good at pumping out quality content at a high quantity? Your articles always provide data and research behind the art of financial services and investing. There was a podcast recently that I really enjoyed. It was Trent Dilfer talking with Ryan Russillo about Stafford and I was about to say Jared Goff, Stafford and Cooper Cup. And I forget what the quote was. Man, it was a good one. I can't remember. But anyway, the point was that Stafford and Cooper Cup were in the gym at five in the morning running routes, not posting it to Instagram. And I think it's similar with us. Not that we are Super Bowl champions, but there's no secret. I think the secret is that we love doing this and we're dedicated and we put in countless hours. For me, the weekend blends into the weekday. Like yesterday, Robin had the boys. She took them to her grandma's house and I'm working. And anytime I get a minute, I'm working because it doesn't feel like work. It's what we love to do. But I think that's the trick. And the other trick is that, Ben, how long have we been doing this for? A long time. I started my blog in 2013. And how long did it used to take you to write a blog post versus how long it takes today? It's like anything else. Practice. Yes. I find like you have to find ways of like clearing your head too. I like to go for a run three or four times during the week. And it's strange. Like, Wait, do you juke? Times, like, do you like head... juke and do spin moves when you're running? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to blow out a hip, <laughs> hip flexor. But those are the times where I'm like clearing my head and I need like a little break. And that's when I'm thinking in my head like, oh, wait, this is a great thing to write about. And so like, I think you need those times to think through some things too. But like part of it is, yeah, you're just, we're reading all the time. We're thinking about this stuff. We're bouncing ideas back off. And I think if you want to like produce a lot of content, you have to be willing to like write a little bit every day. I think Nick was checking out the back ends of our blogs the other day. And he said, Ben, you have like 316 unpublished drafts on your blog. And I pro- those have probably accumulated since 2013 or whatever. And it was stuff that I wrote down 
that I just didn't think was good enough to be put out in the world, but I wrote it anyway. And so I think you just have to get that muscle and train it a little and do it a lot. And so that means like just writing and consuming a little bit all the time, which is what So I guess do. like from the outside looking at it, it's like overwhelming. Like how the hell do we do this? But I mean, we're incentivized to do it. We actually get paid for what we do. And we have a job that affords us this luxury of being able to spend time doing this. Most people just don't. If you have an actual day job that is different from this, it's basically impossible. So it's not that we have more hours in the day. And we get this question all the time. How do you do it? How do you do it? It's time. This is part of our job, which is kind of strange to think about, but it really is. All right. I put 250K into a Robinhood account last year during the lows. So this must have been an older question. Turned it into 1.2 million trading options. This year has been rough. I shudder to think what this account is worth now. I wonder if they've round tripped. By the way, I did a DocuSign tweet today. It's now under the price it was at at the beginning of 2020. Staggering. Before the pandemic stuff even started. It went from like 74 to 310 back to under 74. Crazy. I genuinely feel for people that got swept up in that. And it was very easy to... It went higher than we could have thought. And that's the way it works in the other way. It's going probably lower than a lot of people thought possible. It can't possibly go any lower. When you start thinking that it can't possibly, prepare for the possibility. And some of these stocks are acting like the pandemic just never happened at all, which is just crazy. Okay. This year has been rough and the same strategy is clearly not working. Do you recommend for me to take the remainder of my winnings and put it into an index fund or continue selling vertical spreads on Tesla and Amazon? I'm not going to lie. I have no idea what a vertical spread is. I'm not going to pretend to know what that is. So this is, you won the lottery playing options and it's not working anymore. Now what do you do? That's probably really hard to just start over and be like, I'm just going to put in an index fund. I guess, let's say you have this dream in the back of your head that says that one year where I killed it trading options, it's going to come back. Keep a small amount for doing that, maybe. Like say, I'm going to carve out 10% of my portfolio and I'm still going to do this crazy option strategy. But with the remaining 90%, I'm going to do something a little more reasonable that's not going to potentially crush me someday and see me lose all of my winnings. That's kind of the way I'd think about this. All right. Do you know what a vertical spread is? Yeah, it's when you have one option on top of the other. <laughs> okay. Want to do one more? Right, here? Sure. I've read that in some cases buying tokens in a certain cryptocurrency is equivalent to betting or investing in the success of that cryptocurrency network, i.e., the future apps and traffic to that network, and that this is one of the key benefits of Web3. Is it really clear if today's tokens will survive? How confident are people in making bets on these tokens and networks? To make an analogy with the dot-com bubble, many companies that had the right idea back then didn't end up succeeding themselves, but their ideas were realized only decades later, e.g. pets.com became chewy.com. Is it so early that even diversifying might not help much? Yeah. Yeah. Very possible. I think that the crypto market is going to be way bigger in the future than it is today. Not going to give any specifics, whether that's five years, 10 years, obviously, because I don't know. But diversification is not going to save you if there is another crypto winter. I do think there is something to the fact that Bitcoin has this like brand recognition. And even if all these other cryptos come up and end up eclipsing it, for some reason, that one, I would almost think because of the cult and religious-like nature of it, it's going to have staying power one way or another. But yeah, it seems like it's so easy for every really smart person to poke holes in all of them. Ethereum is good because of this, but also really bad because of this. So something else could come along. Well, Solana did this, but now Solana is bad because of this. Now something else can come along. And it seems like because it's all open source and you can see it all, like, isn't it easy for developers to come in and potentially make a better version of everything? So the fact that the best use case or the best token might not be even created yet is certainly possible. And if that's the case, I don't know. Good luck. Just wait till they invest the best one and buy that one. There you go. Okay. Remember, have any questions? I think we got to a lot today. Almost all of them. 
Thank you, Henry. Thank you, Rocket Dollar. Animal Spirits Pod at gmail.com. We will see you on Wednesday. Wednesday.